Welcome back to the Evidence for Faith podcast with Michael Lane. If you're enjoying our content and would like to help us keep making more episodes on this podcast, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And while you're on the website, make sure to check out some of the other things we got going on, like our specialty programs. We've got one in marine biology, which is an entire marine biology course down in the Florida Keys. And it's great for students ages 14 and up. We also have our biblical archaeology tour in Israel with archaeologists Dr. Stephen Notley. That's coming up very, very soon. So make sure to check those out. And we also have our bookings calendar open. So if you're looking for a speaker to come speak at your event, church, group, school, whatever it may be, make sure to get in your request in right away. And finally, if you have enjoyed a particular series on this podcast, or you want to go back and look at a particular episode, our courses page has every single series we've ever done on the podcast nicely organized in its own course page. And sometimes there's a few extra little downloads and things you can use if you want to go back and study a particular series or share it with a friend or a family. All these links are going to be down in the description if you want to refer back to them after you're done listening to today's episode. And with that, thanks for being here and I'll let Michael take it away. Hi, and welcome to Evidence for Faith again. I'm so glad you're joining me in this series that we're doing on basics of apologetics. These are just basic things that all Christians should be able to have in their arsenal to help them in defending their faith and defending that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior, um, that he is the Son of God and only way to get to the Father and the only way of having eternal life. And in this lesson, what I want to point out to you is having to do with some messianic prophecies. But before I get into that, I want to tell you a true story that happened to me, oh, several decades ago. Back in the 1990s, when I was teaching in Illinois, this is before I even moved to Wisconsin, and I was teaching at a, a school in Illinois. It was a teacher institute. We had a, a number of um, institutes that would take place during the year. Well, one of these institutes that was taking place that just encompassed our staff at the, the school where I was teaching was taking place. And I, I don't remember what the topic was, but during the day, you know, these teacher institute days, um, we were being implemented with some new aspect of education, something that we were encouraged to try in our classrooms. But we were taking a break um, and having some refreshments. And I went over to a table where there was um, some nice refreshments, Dunkin' Donuts, those of you who know me well, um, and things like that. And I'm standing there, and three of my colleagues, co-teachers at the school, not all in my discipline, but teachers at the school, came up to me. And uh, one of them said, can I ask you a question, Mr. Lane? I would really like to know the answer to that's puzzled me for a while. And I said, certainly. He says, now I mean no disrespect in this whatsoever. And I go, fine, go ahead. What's your question? He says, I want to know why you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he is the only way to have eternal life um, and that he died for the sins of the world. I, I want to know why you actually believe that is true. I'm really curious. Well, I could see that he was not being insulting. He was not being facetious in anything. He was actually curious. And so 
I respect that. And I said, well, for one, the change that took place in my life when I was in eighth grade and I became a Christian and the change um, just was amazing that that took place when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. God put his Holy Spirit in me and it made a change. I didn't have to work on this. It was just a metamorphosis that took place in my life. And he says, well, see, I can't I can't understand that because I can't experience that. I've never experienced that. So I cannot really rationalize that. Is there something else that um, could relate to me in my present condition here and standing here that you could convince me that Jesus Christ is the Lord, uh, as you say, is uh, the Son of God and the Savior of the world? And I said, well, uh, yeah, there there is something that really made an impact on my life. Uh, also, was something I was raised with in studying in Scripture, um, and that is messianic prophecies. Now, I never I told him I never sat down and had a class with my my parents or anything forcing the stuff on me. This was more of stuff that I more material I learned as I explored and started studying the Bible on my own. These messianic prophecies, and he's. He said, so what do you mean by Messianic prophecies? And I said, in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, uh, God gave so many clues. Um, For one, he tells us how, not just he made the world, but why there is sin, death, suffering, etc. And and, um, it was by our choice, but how he planned to fix that. We were created to be eternal beings in, in relationship with him and pure and holy, but we chose to rebel against him, which brought death. And God had a plan to fix it right when it happened, starting in Genesis, and it goes all the way through Malachi. He, he explains how he's going to fix this by sending a, a Messiah, um, his son, to fix it. And throughout the Old Covenant, which was written in some cases 1,400 years before Jesus was ever born of the Virgin Mary, um, and as we see all these prophecies is what they are, God giving clues to the Hebrew people and anybody who would read these scriptures about how you would recognize the Messiah and what he would do in fixing the problem so that we could be restored to God and have eternal life. I said, now these prophecies talk about Jesus as the Messiah, and they were written way beforehand, hundreds of years before Jesus's ministry. And he fulfilled all of these dealing with the suffering Messiah that he would come to be. And so the gentleman who was asking the question, he said, but don't you realize that those prophecies, he says, I've been taught that those prophecies that you're referring to in the Old Testament were all things that were written hundreds of years after Christ that the the church sort of made up and wrote these into this Old Testament, um, trying to make Jesus into this Messiah, that all these prophecies and these books and stuff didn't exist until after the time of when Jesus would have been walking on the earth. And I said, oh, that's, that's not true. And he says, well, how do you know that's not true, that these were written beforehand? I said, well, there's a number of things. There, um, you have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which um, show these prophecies, and they were written hundreds of years beforehand. I said, have you heard of those? He says, yeah, I have. I've never really studied what they are. And I said, well, another thing is the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament written around 250 BC. And all these prophecies are in there also. And I, I said, you know, there's there's things like that that prove without a shadow of a doubt all these prophecies were made hundreds of years beforehand. And he goes, oh, well, I had no idea. 
Well, that's a question that I think a lot of people, a lot of non-Christians often are puzzled by is, why do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And I think one of the most strong uh, apologetic reasonings we can give people is to show them to defend our faith that Jesus is the Son of God by using these prophecies. Now, in our ministry, we have on podcasts uh, a series called The Road to Emmaus. It's like 24 lessons or so. You can go to our website, download this for free, and there's 24 lessons. I know some groups have used this, small groups have used it, some Sunday schools have actually gone through this, and adult groups in, that meet during the week have gone through this series. And a num- I have taught this also to a number of college students over the years. And um, I've had people tell me that that series and, and seeing these Messianic prophecies really cemented into their mind that Jesus truly is the Messiah and all of this is true. So I think this is something that I want to include in the basics of apologetics because this is really important. Now, I don't have time in one podcast to go through, you know, 80 major prophecies. That's what our Road to Emmaus lesson is. But I can, in a short period of time, in about 40 minutes or so, I can give you, say, like about 18 major prophecies uh, that show that Jesus was the Messiah and that he truly is and, and that how the Jews were supposed to recognize him and, and even how he was going to fix things and what was he going to do. And it details his life, what his life would be like, even not just miracles that he would do, but also even it describes uh, in these prophecies even where his ministry would take place specifically. So there's so many things that are outlined in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament that we should know. So I want to take about uh, 40 minutes here and just run through some of these major prophecies. And if you've never studied this, I hope this will entice you to go to our other study, The Road to Emmaus, and and get into that. Maybe get a group of people together and go through that together. It, It is a phenomenal study to help cement that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. And as I told that colleague of mine back in the 1990s, the evidence that this was all written beforehand is overwhelming. The archaeological evidence evidence and even in the literature evidence using the Septuagint shows that all of these things were written hundreds of years before Christ was ever even born, um, written in the BCs, in some cases going back to 1400 BC. But let's take a look at some of these. The first one I want to hit is um, the first one. We're going to take these sort of in order here uh, as they appear in the Old Covenant. And the first one is what I call the purpose, the purpose. And that's Genesis 3.15. Now I'm reading these, unless I tell you otherwise, this is going to be out of the English Standard Version. But um, Genesis 3.15, just to set the scene, this is where man has rebelled against God for the first time. Sin has entered the realm of God's cosmos, the creation, and also because of this, death has now become part of the cosmos where it didn't exist before. And in Genesis 3.15, God explains how he's going to fix the problem. He, it reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, now this tells us a number of things here right to begin with. This verse mentions, first of all, a suffering Messiah. Most Christians are not even aware that the Old Testament or the Old Covenant details two different messiahs. There is the suffering Messiah, and then there is the victorious warrior judge king Messiah. And Jesus is and came as the suffering Messiah. 
And when he comes again, he's coming again as the victorious warrior, judge, king, Messiah. But that's in the future. The suffering Messiah is what he came the first time. And here it mentions that there would be a suffering Messiah because it says here, and this is Moses writing this down from God's direction, you will bruise his heel. This is talking about that this Messiah who's going to fix the problem is going to experience sorrow, pain, anguish, etc. It also states very clearly that this Messiah would be a son and that he would be born of a woman. I mean, it's very, very clear that this is in here, that he would be born. So somebody, some male person will be born of a female woman. That's what we have as this story and the first prophecy. The second prophecy I want to mention is where we have the Son of God, that this suffering Messiah would be the Son of God. Now, this goes, um, let's skip all the way into Psalm, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and it reads, The Lord said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Now, just in general here, just to give you a statement, Psalm 2 has a lot of Messianic prophecies. I'm just pulling out a few in this podcast today just to show you and prove to you that Jesus Christ is this Messiah. And where it says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. The Jews all realized that the Messiah, Mashiach, as he would be called um, in the Hebrew, that he would be the son of God. And they get this from this psalm and this verse in particular, that the Lord is talking about his son being begotten. And um, it's talking about begotten. He's already existing, but he will be born of a woman to fix the problems and stuff of sin. And that's what we have as the second one. So this suffering Messiah will be the son of God. It's going to be a son born of a woman, but it would also be the son of God. That's why there's no mention here of a human father. It's going to be God will be the father of this. And as we know from um, the Gospels that Jesus was born uh, of the Virgin Mary through the action of the Holy Spirit. Let's go to the third one. The third one is that this suffering Messiah, as we said, he's going to suffer, go through pain, anguish, etc., which we saw in Genesis 3.15. He's also going to be resurrected, meaning he's going to die, but he will be resurrected. This is found in Psalm chapter 16, verse 9 and 10, and it reads, Therefore my heart is glad, skip down a little bit, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor let your Holy One see decay. Now David's writing this, but this is not referring to David, because David decayed in his in his tomb. This is obviously somebody different, and your Holy One is a Messianic title here, so this is talking about the Messiah, the suffering Messiah, that he would be put into a grave, but he would not be left in the grave to decay, thus meaning he would be resurrected. So that is where we see the first prophecy dealing with the resurrection of the Messiah, which is what we celebrate with Easter. Um, Let's go to the fourth one. Uh, Since we're on the resurrection, the Messiah is going to die. So where do we get that? It's Psalm chapter 22. In Psalm chapter 22, um, we find a lot of prophecies. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, Psalm 22 is quoted more often than all of the others. No other psalm is quoted as much as Psalm 22. And a lot of this psalm deals with the suffering Messiah and the death of the Messiah, that he would actually die. I I challenge you sometime to maybe uh, later on tonight or, or tomorrow morning or something when you get up, just open up your Bibles to Psalm 22 and just read it yourself, picturing 
Jesus in the Passion Week and before the Romans and, and his death on the cross. Just picture this and see how many things pertain to that. It's amazing. That's why we call this pro, um, these prophecies. Uh, just to give you an idea of some of it here, what, you, what I'm talking about is in the first verse alone, it says, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, of course, Jesus quoted that on the cross. And you get to verse 6, it says, scorned by men and despised by the people. Well, Jesus was. The suffering Messiah was scorned by men. He was despised. He was uh, despised, and that's just said many times in the gospel. Verse 7, the very next verse says, all who see me mock me, they hurl insults. And we know that that happened to Jesus on the cross. The people hurled insults at him. Even the thief on the cross next to him was hurling insults at him. You skip down to verse 15, it says, my tongue tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. That is a condition that is very common in Roman-style crucifixion from dehydration and stuff and the suffering where the tongue sticks to the roof of the mouth, and it's describing that. And in verse 18, there's a great prophecy here about that states, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And when you read the gospel accounts of Jesus on the cross, that's what the Roman soldiers did. Um, they took his garments, what he had, and they cast lots. They, they threw dice, in other words, uh, to divide them up and stuff like that. So we see, oh, I, I challenge you, take a look at Psalm 22. There's more in there, but it is phenomenal, these things and how they so accurately portrayed what was going on. Uh, the fifth one, let's take a look at the fifth one here. Um, I'm going to call this one Betrayed by a Close Friend. This is Psalm 41, verse 9. It is prophesied that the Messiah would be betrayed by a close friend. It reads, even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Of course, this is a reference dealing with Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was one of the disciples. And we often, as Christians, we often don't study this very carefully about these 12 disciples. But if you note for a minute and just think about Judas and his role as a disciple. Yeah, he was a little bit of an oddball, but the thing is compared to the others. But what was really interesting, he was the treasurer. He was the treasurer. John tells us that he kept the money back. Um, he was the treasurer of the group. And it says that he often sort of dipped his hands into it, but the point is he's the treasurer. Do you know what that means? Judas isn't the, on the sidelines of the disciples. He's one of the leaders. A treasurer of a group isn't like an official. That's somebody of importance. You control, Who controls the money bag controls a lot. And Judas was obviously one of the leaders of the disciples. And that's why it says here, a close friend also. The sixth prophecy I want to mention here is, again, dealing with a suffering Messiah. This goes back to Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, verse 21, we read, They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Well, you can see this fulfilled in Matthew 27, 34, in Mark 15, 23, and also in Luke 23, 36. When Jesus is being put on the cross, they offered him, the Romans offered him gall uh, with, mixed with vinegar, sour wine, to give him as they start to go through the crucifixion. Uh, this was something that the Romans did on occasion when they would crucify someone. It was because they want the, the, the crucifixion death to be prolonged and bring as much suffering as possible without killing the person right off. And so putting gall, many scholars believe what this is, it has, an, it has to do with like a, an opiate type of a drug that would deaden some pain. In other words, 
putting it in modern terms, it would be like them giving Jesus a Vicodin right before they start putting the nails in him and putting him on the cross and stuff. And now this is very important. Jesus did not do drugs. He refused this. Jesus did not do drugs. And I think we should encourage all of our children and, and friends and stuff to, to realize Jesus did not do drugs, but he is definitely the suffering Messiah. Um, let's go to number seven. How would you recognize the Messiah? Well, God tells us many things very specific about what his life would be like. And in um, Psalm chapter 78, verses one and two, we read that he would be a parable teacher. A parable teacher. Psalm 78, 1 and 2 reads, All my people hear my teachings, listen to the words of my mouth, I will open my mouth in parables. Now, Jesus was a rabbi. Rabbis commonly taught in parables. So it's not that Jesus was the only parable teacher of his time period, but he was a rabbi. He was identified as a rabbi by many people uh, that he came across. Um, he obviously dressed the part, but also he he taught with parables, and he often did teach with parables. You read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You see that the, the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, was a parable teacher taking things of nature and stuff, and particularly farming instruments and farming stories, um, and put them into stories that would relate to people. And that's why people love, even to this day, to listen to parables and teachings like that. I learned many years ago, my first year of teaching school down in the Bahamas, I gave my students at the end of the year a survey about how much I taught them in the classroom of structured and formal education. I gave them a survey trying to recall, you know, how much they had learned. But I found out something that shocked me. Um, they didn't learn as much as I was hoping or thought they did, but they remembered every cotton-picking little story I ever told them. And I realized my first year of teaching that, wow, they remembered details of the stories and parables and things that I gave them. And I thought, I've got to change my way of teaching. And so I often teach using parables. In a structured classroom, I commonly do that. On the marine biology trip that I do every year, the textbook that I wrote for that, we have what's called Michael moments in there. And these are stories um, of stupid things I have done to myself or have done to people, but they are teaching moments. And they're sometimes humorous stories, but the people remember these. And what's interesting is they will remember the stories, but uh, what I've done is I've taken a biological lesson, an objective or something, and stuck it into the story. So they will thus then remember it. And if you ever get a chance, we're hoping to publish our marine biology textbook very soon. So it'll be available on Amazon and you can read it yourself. Some of the goofy things I've done, but I don't even want to get into that. Let's go to the to the eighth one here, um, that he would be in the line of David. Now, this is actually a very common prophecy talking about the lineage and the genealogy of the Messiah, that he would be a descendant of Noah, he would be a descendant of, of um, uh, Shem, he would be a, a descendant of um, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, etc. And it goes on, and many times he is referred to in many Old Testament passages to be in the line of David. Now, Psalm 89 is just one of many of these prophecies stating it. Um, in Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, we read, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So this is obviously talking about 
um, David's lineage being eternal. If you move further down in that same psalm, that's 89, Psalm 89, get down to verse 35 and 36, we read it again. Um, Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Jesus is sitting on the throne today. It tells us that in Romans, um, the first four verses of Romans, that Jesus is uh, the Son of God. And um, after making purifications for sin, he ascended into heaven and is sitting on the throne. Uh, Thus a fulfillment of this prophecy here too. And he is still reigning today. So we see this and that's why Jesus is often called the son of David. It's just one of the messianic titles. There's quite a few messianic titles. This was one of them. Let's go to the ninth one. Number nine is he would be rejected by the people. That the people would actually reject the suffering Messiah. Now, this is, in, this is found in Psalm 118, verse 22. We read, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Peter actually uses this and talks about it specifically as being Jesus and how he was rejected by the people. Um, And we know that Jesus was rejected by the people. Uh, Very few followers um, believed in him. And uh, as he walked around, at one point he had over 70 disciples. Most of them left, and um, they didn't accept him after a period of time. So he would be rejected, and even to this day, people still reject him as their savior. So uh, that's that one. Let's go to number 10. This is an interesting one because it tells us, God tells us in prophecies in the book of Isaiah, he tells us where the Messiah's primary area of ministry is going to be. And it's going to be in the land of Galilee. So ministry in Galilee is the 10th prophecy we're doing here. And Isaiah 9.1 reads, the land of Zebulun, And the land of Naphtali, skip down a little bit, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. This is talking about the Messiah when he comes, where he's going to be doing most of his ministry. Zebulun and Naphtali is in the land of what is called Galilee. And it actually says Galilee. And that's why we often hear statements of Jesus of Galilee. Actually, there's an area in Galilee on the north side of the Sea of Galilee where he spent most of his time ministering. Not all of it, but a majority of his three and a half years of ministry were in a small little area, often called the Evangelical Triangle. Uh, If you draw, um, if you have an atlas or a map, if you have your Bible atlas or something out and you take a look and you look where Capernaum is, um, you go north of Capernaum, you come to Chorazin, draw a line there. Now go over to Bethsaida. Um, and draw a line from Chorazin to Bethsaida, and then from back from Bethsaida back to Capernaum, you've made a triangle, and that's where Jesus spent most of his time and has to do with the fulfillment of Isaiah 9-1 as a prophecy. Number 11, it's the virgin birth. Now, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we often read this around Christmas time. Um, it reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So this is a very important prophecy. Like I say, it it tells us a lot. God is saying there's going to be a special sign, a supernatural, if you will, sign be given to the people. And it reads that the behold a virgin. 
So it's going to be a human mother. We have that back in Genesis 3.15. Jesus had to be born of a human, but he can't have a human father because he would be an ordinary person that way. He had to be Mar- had to be the, the son of Mary to be human, but he has the Spirit of God as his father. So he has the Holy Spirit, thus he is both God and he is totally God. Um, both Colossians and the book of Hebrews chapter 1 and each tells us this. And um, he also is human. As Luke tells us in his gospel, he had human emotions and he even bled. Um, and John talks about his human aspects also, that he bled on the cross. He is totally human. Uh, we get his human birth in both Matthew and in Luke. So Dr. Luke, writing his gospel, gives us a lot of the details having to do with the human side of the Messiah. He would be the Son of God, which was also a prophecy we've already seen. The Holy Spirit is his father, Mary is his mother. And God did it this way to make sure that no other person could ever claim to be the Messiah, because it has to be someone who is both God and man. And no ordinary person, though many have claimed over the years to be the Messiah, the Son of God, no one really is. Only Jesus fulfills that, and he's the only begotten Son. Now, some translations, I want to point out something here, just a little side note. Some translations that we have of our Bibles today replace the word virgin with the word woman, a young woman. Why would they do that? Well, Critics say that, um, well, if you go back and you look, whenever you see some difficulty like in this Bible, go back to the original languages. And in the Hebrew, the word being used here is the word Alma. Now, Alma can mean young woman. It can. It just so happens, practically every time it's used in the Bible, it's referring to a virgin. And so it can mean a young woman, but um, that is... Well, we can tell what is actually being meant here. Is it supposed to be just a woman or is it supposed to be a virgin? Well, women giving birth is not a special thing. As I said at the beginning of this, this prophecy says God's going to give us a sign, some supernatural sign. A woman giving birth is not a supernatural sign. I mean, it happens every day, happens every hour of the day. Somebody's giving birth. But for a virgin to give birth, that's special. That's not something you see every day. That's miraculous. So a virgin, Alma always means, in the Bible, always is referring to a virgin. But I can give you more evidence for this. Let's go back to the Septuagint, the Old Testament book written by 72 Jewish rabbi expert scholars back around 250 B.C., and putting it into Greek. They took the Hebrew Bible and put it into Greek because Alexander had Hellenized the world. So um, these Bible scholars, uh, Hebrew rabbis, thought we should have a copy of the scriptures in Greek. And it was actually the Septuagint is the Bible like Jesus would have been using in his day and was was used frequently. And uh, Paul and, and other the disciples and stuff often quote out of the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was Greek. Now, the thing is, in Greek, there is a specific word for like a young maiden or a young woman. There's also a specific word for virgin. In the Septuagint passage here uh, of of this exact same prophecy we're using here in Isaiah, it's the word virgin. So these Jewish rabbis, experts at the Hebrew language and the Hebrew law and the and the word of God itself, these 72 men 
all realize this is talking about a supernatural event and that this would be a virgin. Now, that should put an end to it. But still, we see people who at Christmas time will many times um, bring this up that, well, it's, that's not what Isaiah was writing. It's talking about Isaiah's own child. No, that is not. This is a messianic prophecy. And another thing that is often brought up is it says his name is Emmanuel. He would be called Emmanuel. Well, in Hebrew, Im, uh, Im is the word with us. El, which is short for Elohim, which is a name uh, uh, the word God, so God with us is what this actually means. Again, this is talking about a supernatural birth, God being born from a woman. That's what this is talking about. Remember, this verse begins with the Lord himself is going to give you a sign. So this is a supernatural event. That's how that goes. Let's go to number 12. Talking about a child being born, let's go to another passage in Isaiah that everybody reads like at this uh, at Christmas time, and that's Isaiah 9, 6. A child is born. A child is born. Handel, when he wrote the Messiah, used this passage in that classic, um, beautiful musical piece, the Messiah. It reads, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, the phrase here, his name shall be called. We're getting something very special here. What we're getting are messianic titles. Jesus, the Messiah, has many messianic titles that are found all through the Old Testament. Jesus' favorite one that he loved to use himself was Son of Man. So he has many, many titles. But in the Jewish culture, you understand, and this is why this is sort of important, in Jewish culture, names were not just a title, but they meant something about the person. And, you know, Jesus' name here means something about it. It's telling about his character. He is a wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is everlasting Father. He is Prince of Peace. So we see these. Now, critics will often say Jesus, I, how many times I've had people say Jesus didn't exist until he had his human birth? Now, that goes against John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1. They're all very clear on this. And people who say that, that's heresy. No, Jesus is totally God. He is eternal. And notice that God says that his son here, in this passage, here in Isaiah, notice that it says, everlasting father. I love when people try to tell me that um, that Jesus is not truly the, the um, eternal God, that he's not eternal. I'd love to take him to this prophecy here because it specifically names everlasting father. And as I say, John 1, 1 through 3, Colossians 1, 15 and 16, Hebrews 1, 2, all specifically tell us that Jesus is eternal. He has always existed. He existed prior to being born of the, of the Virgin Mary. As a matter of fact, there's passages in the Old Testament where he makes uh, pre-incarnate appearances. But some people say, well, why is, why is he called Everlasting Father and, instead of the Son of God here? Well, they reason that if God the Father is the Father and Jesus is the Son, how can Jesus then be everlasting? Well, he is everlasting. He is totally God. As again, it talks about in those passages that I mentioned in the New Covenant. This verse is not teaching that Jesus is the Father specifically. No, no. Actually, if you study the way that this is written in Hebrew, the Hebrew sentence structure literally states that he is the Father 
of eternity. Everlasting Father is not saying he is Father God. No, he is the Father of eternity, meaning that Jesus is the controller and the and the authority over eternal life. That's how this is written in Hebrew. We sort of lose a little bit when we translate it into English, but that's what the meaning actually is. Now, why in the gospel was Jesus never called, you know, this title here? Um, Well, it's his heavenly name. It's his heavenly name. As I said, Jesus had a preference. He loved to call himself the Son of Man, which is another Messianic title, basically coming from the book of Daniel. But um, the name Jesus, if you just look at Jesus, the word Jesus as a name, um, it is the same um, as the Hebrew equivalent for Joshua. Yasha is the way it is in, in Hebrew. And what it means, as I told you before, names mean something. Yasha means God saves. Jesus is the Savior. That's what it is. Well, let's go to number 13. Did you know that Jesus's life would be described as being, in these prophecies, a healing Messiah? In Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, we read this. It reads, Then will the eyes be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. This is an amazing prophecy because it tells us that when the Messiah comes, you will recognize him because he'll be a miracle worker. And by the way, I want to point something out to you. Many prophets of the Old Testament performed many miracles. Some of them, Elijah and Elisha, actually um, were instrumental in bringing people back from the dead. So doing stuff like this, prophets could do many miracles by the power of God. But one thing you won't see in the Old Testament ever is the eyes of someone born blind being opened, that a blind person would be able to see. To the Jews in that culture, only God could do that. No prophet did it. Only God could do that. And here we're going to see the eyes will be opened. To a Jew, someone who can open the eyes of the blind has to be God. And then it also says the ears unstopped, so the deaf people would be healed, the lame leap, and the mute shout for joy. And all these things, we read of examples of this written by the gospel writers of all these things taking place. Jesus doing these and fulfilling these prophecies. Let's go to number 14. Again, this goes back to the suffering Messiah. This one is the scourged Messiah the scourge Messiah. Now, this is a longer passage. I don't have time in this lesson to read this whole thing, but it starts in Isaiah chapter fifty-three, verse 12. And we're going to see some, again, amazing passages. I encourage you, please take some time out to read Isaiah 52 and 53. Amazing, all these things that take place. For instance, I'll just name a few things. In verse 4, it says, He would be stricken by God. Well, this was fulfilled as the Pharisees and the Sadducees thought that Jesus was. did anything wrong, but this fulfilled that prophecy. In verse 5, it says that he was pierced. Jesus was pierced in the side, pierced in the hands and the feet with nails, pierced in the side by his spear. 
Verse 5, it says he brought us peace. Well, Romans 5.1 tells us of the peace that Jesus brings us, peace between us now and God. We're no longer God's enemy because of our sin. We uh, now have peace and are counted in God's family. Verse 6, the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Uh, Or another way of saying it, the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. That's the same thing. It's foretelling that Christ would die for the sins of the people. Verse uh, number 7, it says, he did not open his mouth. Read what John writes in in the passage when uh, Jesus is before Pilate and everybody. He doesn't try to defend himself. Confuse Pilate. Why aren't you even trying to defend yourself? It was a prophecy. Verse 9, a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy person, fulfilled this when he asked for the body of Jesus and put Jesus' body in his own tomb, a brand new tomb um, in the grave of a of wicked people, of men. Uh, verse 11, we read, after he will see the light of life. Here again is a reference telling us that Jesus would rise again from the dead. He would be resurrected. In verse 12, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for transgressions. Here it is. We're seeing that he is dying for our sins and making intercession for us between us and a holy God. I mean, this is a phenomenal passage you got to take a look at on your own and just study sometime. It's, it's just fascinating. Let's go to number 15 quickly here. Called out of Egypt. Called out of Egypt. Jesus would come from Egypt. And that is from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And it reads, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. There's a similarity that we see here. Back in Genesis, the Israelites were avoid starvation um, because of the famine and stuff, so they flee to Egypt to avoid death. Now, in the gospel, Matthew's gospel in particular, we read how the Holy Family, that's um, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, flee uh, death at the hands of Herod and go again to Egypt. Both are called out eventually. We have the Exodus back uh, with the Hebrew people, and um, after Herod dies, um, Joseph leads his family to uh, back into Israel to Nazareth. So we see that take place, which talks about the birthplace. Since we're talking about the birth uh, of Jesus here, we have to do with Micah chapter 2. I'm sorry, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Excuse me on that. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for uh, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, of ancient days. This is talking about where the Messiah would be born. Where is he going to be? This this future ruler going to be born, and it's in Bethlehem. And number 17, uh, th- this one I think is one of my all-time favorite prophecies, Messianic prophecies. It's um, I titled this one, Removes Sin in a Single Day. I love this one, Removes Sin in a Single Day. It's in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verses 8, 9, and 10. Listen to what? is written here. I'm going to bring my servant the branch, skip down a little bit, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. But he's going to remove the sin of the land in a single day. How remarkable, because that is exactly what Jesus did on the cross on one day. Wow. 
I just, I just love this. Again, it's talking about a suffering Messiah, that he's going to be doing this and removing the sin, and he does this through his death. We go to number 18. This is the, the last one we're going to do here um, in our time. We're just about out. Um, and this is about that there would be a forerunner coming before the Messiah. So you would recognize him. Uh, God says, I'm going to send somebody to announce it like a herald to let everybody know that he's coming. And this is found in two different places, in Malachi 3.1 and also Malachi 4.5. Malachi 3.1 reads, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now skip down to chapter 4, verse 5. We read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now both these are being references to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the one who announced the coming Messiah. And if you recall, John the Baptist in the, in the uh, book of John even, even tells his disciples, I am not the Messiah. And he points to Jesus and says, Behold, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Um, obviously, when John makes that statement, he's taking some of the Messianic prophecies we just mentioned, like the one in Zechariah and stuff. He takes away the sins of the world. There it is. And so John the Baptist understood this, and he is proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. He was the forerunner. And his appearance was very similar to that of Elijah. You read what John looked like and what clothes and stuff he had and what he ate. Compare that to Elijah. You're going to see there's a lot of similarities between the two. Well, this has been fun going through this. Um, and uh, these whole things having to do with uh, Jesus, these prophecies, like I say, there's so many. There's, there's um, 80 major prophecies. We only did 18 here. Um, over 170 minor prophecies, all concerning about the Messiah in the Old Covenant. Just to let you know, too, the mathematical probability, there have been mathematicians who have done this, of one person being born, just one human male being born, fulfilling all of these prophecies, like 250 prophecies. The odds of one person doing that in their lifetime is 1 to 10 to the 250th power. 1 to 10 to the 250th power. It's a 1 with 250 zeros behind it. I don't even know what you call the number like that. But according to the laws and, and, and what we know about the laws of probability and laws of science, and which I worked with when I worked in genetics, we used things like this, probabilities and things. Anything beyond 1 to 10 to the 50th power is considered scientifically impossible. Thus, this is impossible. Hence, fulfilling the prophecies is a miracle that Jesus did that most of us don't even realize. That's what it is. So, yes, Jesus did it all. He proved this, that he is the Son of God. To me, these kind of prophecies really just add to my knowledge that Jesus Christ is definitely who he says he is, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. He fulfilled all of these prophecies for the suffering Messiah. He did them all. And when he comes again, he's going to come and fulfill the ones for the victorious warrior, judge, king, Messiah. 
Um, and that may be coming soon. We don't know. But um, if you would like to see more on this, again, you can go to evidenceforfaith.org. Um, look on the courses. We have the Road to Emmaus, Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament, and there's like about 24 or so lessons here. Get together with a group of people. I encourage you to go through these together, listen, pause it every now and then, and discuss what's being uh, talked about and, and taught. So I want to thank you so much for joining me as we've gone through this lesson here in these last 45 minutes. I, I thank you for tuning in and listening to this podcast, and I hope and I pray that this will add so much um, cement, if it would be, um, figuratively, to your faith to secure you in the faith that Jesus Christ truly is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that he is the only way to have eternal life and come to the Father, the only way. So until we meet again, take care and may God bless. Thanks for tuning in and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again and we'll see you on the next episode.